Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature. If you're going to bring about meaningful change in a society, you can't do it overnight. Now, that's a great model for development. A man named Miguel Sabido, he made money doing a very popular program. He entertained his audience, and he increased literacy in Mexico by a huge amount. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. The fastest growing product on our planet is information. Recently, two economists from the University of California at Berkeley calculated our total global information production for one year. They counted all the analog media found on paper, film, and tape, all the digital media on disks and chips, and added everything dialed and tuned in from all the bandwidths of TV, radio, and telecommunications. In the year 2000, we created 1.5 exabytes of information. If you can wrap your mind around it, that's 37,000 times more information than is contained in the colossal Library of Congress. When they counted again, just three years later, the increase was exponential from 1.5 to 3.5 exabytes. How on earth will we make sense of this unfathomable ocean of media? And what good does all that information do us anyway? Plenty, say advocates of media for social change. Media entrepreneurs and digital diplomats are using old and new media to tell a new story. Because when stories change, the world changes. As far as changing the story goes, it's our belief that from the earliest cave painting right up until the latest piece of machinima, videos shot in virtual worlds are called machinima, that people have a desire to be protagonists at the center of their own story. We found that people from around the world were going into virtual worlds to explore their identity as Muslims, and they were engaging in very difficult and challenging dialogues. They were engaging in role-playing, they were engaging in identity exploration, and they were coming together in a way that we could not have imagined possible. Do virtual worlds deepen human connection and build bridges of understanding? Can a soap opera change social behavior for the common good? This is Soap Operas to Avatars, Digital Diplomacy and Making Fiction into Fact, with William Ryerson, Joshua S. Fouts, and Rita J. King. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. The interactive online community at www.secondlife.com 
is a virtual world that in some ways mirrors the real world. It also reflects the values, desires, and unbounded imagination of the people who participate in it. You start by creating an avatar, a character that represents you on screen. You use voice or text chat to interact with other residents. You explore environments that already exist or create your own. You can make friends, shop, build a house, or start a business. But in Second Life, you can also fly, breathe underwater, and do anything else you can imagine. The makers of Second Life try to make it as intuitive as possible. Many educational systems, colleges, universities, high schools, are going into Second Life and creating, as my collaborator Rita J. King describes it, 3D dioramas. She says, you know, in high school we used to build dioramas to illustrate historical moments. Now you can build dioramas that not only are, are 3D and photorealistic, but that other people from around the world can come and see and participate in. Joshua S. Fouts and Rita J. King know Second Life inside and out. In the physical world, they're senior fellows at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. And in both worlds, they run a consulting company called Dancing Inc. Productions. He's the chief global strategist. She's the CEO and creative director. Their clients are global businesses, governments, and educational institutions seeking to help understand the evolving culture of the Internet. Fouts is recognized as the world's leading expert on digital diplomacy. He describes Second Life as a kind of 3D Wikipedia to which everyone can contribute. The National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration has built an interactive map exploratory 3D version of the ocean seafloor so that people can go in and experience and see and walk around the bottom of the ocean. Not only that, but to get a sense of what kind of sea life is there. There are people who have built replicas of tsunamis to see how to evade or respond to a tsunami. I also think that from a cultural perspective, the, the tapestry of global cultures that are represented in this virtual world is an incredible opportunity for us to understand the fact that we as humans coexist and share one planet. We share that planet culturally. We share that planet environmentally in terms of resources, climate. All of these things are part of a continuum. I don't see anything as mutually exclusive. I don't see virtual worlds as a place of other. I see virtual worlds as a continuum of opportunities to better understand each other. We can better understand each other as disparate and different cultures. We can better understand what it means through the power of these 3D tools to live in a world where we have finite resources, where we have an environment that is part of the continuum and world that we are, where every living creature, be it plant, non-human animals, even the earth itself, works as part of this overall tapestry and continuum. And you, you get a sense of that when you enter into a virtual world. Joshua Fout started playing online games when he was a teen. Not so long ago, while playing Star Wars Galaxies with millions of other people from around the world, he had a bright idea for an innovative research project. He noticed that this computer game created intense relationships among strangers. As part of his real-world job as director of the Center for Public Diplomacy at the University of Southern California, he wrote a grant to study how games can provide cross-cultural understanding and create better cultural dialogue. That project was so successful that he began another study of cultural relations in the virtual world, this time in the context of current events. The impact of September 11th has created a heightened awareness about 
the importance of better cultural communication between communities that are Muslim and non-Muslim. Even within Muslim communities, better communication is important. And I thought, what would be a way to do this in which physical violence wouldn't be possible? Because we've seen a lot of conflict that has come out of the post-September 11th acts from the war in Iraq to Afghanistan, all of these from violence in Europe. A lot of tensions have surrounded this. So I wrote a grant proposal in collaboration with my collaborator, Rita J. King, who's an investigative journalist and an expert in virtual world corporate culture and really virtual world culture, in which we propose to ask the question, how is it that we can use virtual worlds to facilitate better dialogue around Islam? What we found completely blew our minds, shocked us. People told us that this was a novel grant. It was an interesting concept, but the digital divide between the West and the Middle East, where the highest density of Muslims are, if you don't count Southeast Asia, Indonesia actually is the largest Muslim population, and India actually has a huge Muslim population as well. But people said the digital divide would preempt or prevent us from having any substantive interactions. In fact, we found just the opposite was the case. We found that people from around the world were going into virtual worlds to explore their identity as Muslims, to explore their identity as non-Muslims who wanted to understand what it meant to be Muslim, and they were engaging in very difficult and challenging dialogues. They were engaging in role-playing. They were engaging in identity exploration. And they were coming together in a way that we could not have imagined possible. Understanding Islam through virtual worlds took place across four continents and in the virtual world of Second Life. They chose Second Life because more than 70% of users are from outside the United States. Joshua Fouts's collaborator, Rita J. King, spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. First of all, everything you see in Second Life, as many of you already know, is user-created. So if someone builds a mosque, they're building a mosque from scratch on a piece of grass. So it's pretty amazing to think of all the things that you can build. Um, so if you build an environment and then you build a character to present in that environment, one of the biggest issues that, that really interests us, and in fact as a journalist I've been writing about this for almost 10 years, is identity and how much of it is authentic. And we, there are different demographics in Second Life. It's, some people have always wanted to be vampires and they're really excited that they finally get to grow fangs and bite people on the neck. But then there are people who really want to participate authentically in a way that, they, that liberates parts of themselves. And I started searching on temples, mosques, synagogues, cathedrals, just to see what people were doing in the space, assuming that nobody would be doing anything in the space at that point. And I was absolutely staggered by what I found. I ended up in a Jewish synagogue during prayer services and met a Muslim woman who told me that she had been burning with curiosity her entire life to know what goes on during prayer services in a synagogue but felt that she would be persecuted or make people uncomfortable if she went to find out. And once I had a chance to process what I was hearing... I realized that we can't go backward from this. At this point, because human beings can embody avatar forms and interact with one another in ways that defy your cultural identity in the physical world, but in other ways allow you to really commit to your cultural identity in the physical world because you can simultaneously create a new concept of self and community by exploring who you'd be if you were not born at a particular time and place in a particular place in the world. So our work sort of straddled the line between values in the physical world and how they felt about those values in the physical world in countries where, in many cases, particularly women, were not 
permitted to speak in their societies about it. And so we were also looking at the entry point for how can we initiate conversations and, and make discoveries about how would people act if they were allowed to act any way they want to. So we kept the conversation on ideas such as, is it disrespectful to wear digital shoes in a virtual mosque? I mean, you're not tracking dirt and germs into a sacred space in a virtual world, but yet if you show up wearing cowboy boots in a virtual mosque, people notice it and they think that you're being disrespectful. And also, um, as far as wearing traditional Muslim attire goes, and traditional being relative to different countries or even regions within countries, but it's not flesh that you're covering in a virtual world. So many women who wear burqa in the physical world, for example, don't feel that they have to wear burqa in Second Life. And conversely, many women who grew up in traditional Muslim homes and then moved to Western countries and don't wear burqa do in Second Life because they wanted to see how it feels. King explored practices of cultural identity and respect in both worlds. But there are definite advantages to virtual world research around cultural flashpoints. Ishtahad, it's the critical thought component of Islam, and it's the counterbalance to jihad. So Irshad Manji was basically saying that every Muslim knows about jihad, but ask a Muslim about Ishtahad, and many won't, won't know. And so when we first went to the, the entrance to the virtual Hajj to Mecca, there's a duffel bag you can click on, and it gives you everything you need, right down to the clothing and the stone-throwing animations. And so when you make an object appear, if I made this cup appear on this table in Second Life, it's called rezzing. It would be rezzing the cup. So you would rez a headscarf at the Hajj to Mecca. And, but my headscarf wasn't rezzing. And so I was trying, but it wasn't happening. And so you would see my avatar with her hair all loose in Western clothing. And we met two male avatars at the opening to the Hajj to Mecca, one of whom identified himself as being from North Caucasus, which is a blood-soaked region with a lot of issues related to Islam. And I asked him about Ishtahad, and he thought I was asking about jihad, and he said, this is why I never speak to Westerners, you always want to know about jihad. And I said, actually, if you could go back and reread the chat log and see that I asked about Ishtahad, and he was quiet for a couple of minutes, and then he apologized for the misunderstanding, and I apologized to him for underestimating the language barrier, and then we interviewed them for about an hour, hour and a half, and they were hugely helpful to us. And so try to imagine in the physical world me standing there, you know, the Hajj to Mecca asking uh, questions, and it just, it would never happen. It would, so, and if I did and there was a misunderstanding, it certainly wouldn't have resulted in an hour or an hour and a half of someone investing their time to help correct misperceptions. Rita J. King and Joshua Fouts released their findings as a mini-documentary, a set of policy recommendations, and a graphic book. They aim to make this still very new medium as accessible as possible to everyone, from the Secretary of State and frontline foreign service officers to the public. When we return, learn how a beloved soap opera inspired a nationwide literacy campaign and how the soap opera strategy has influenced change around countless other social issues. This is from Soap Operas to Avatars, Digital Diplomacy and Making Fiction into Fact. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. You can download this and other Bioneers programs at the radio pages at Bioneers.org. William Ryerson was on his way to a Ph.D. in ecology in 1968 
when he heard biologist Paul Ehrlich speak about his new blockbuster book, The Population Bomb. The clearly articulated relationships among overpopulation, loss of biodiversity, and climate change galvanized the young Yale student. He became an environmental activist and reoriented his studies to human population issues. Through student organizing and research, Ryerson quickly realized that the right of women to control their own reproductive health was central to solving the population conundrum everywhere around the world. But before women feel empowered to play a role in making decisions about family life, they must believe they have the right and the ability to do so, even in cultures where traditions and gender roles do not offer that opportunity. Ryerson says media can provide that sense of self-effectiveness and change behavior for the common good. He points to the work of a Mexican TV mogul. The telenovela strategy came out of one of the capitals of production of telenovelas, Mexico. A man named Miguel Sabido, vice president of the largest commercial network, Televisa, was not only a producer of their primetime telenovelas and very popular at that, but he also oversaw the audience research division. So he had a real sense of the impact he was having through his programs on all kinds of issues and fads just through the characters in the program. The audience was attracted by the normal love triangles and cliffhangers of the other storylines, but they were observing these characters who were struggling with poverty and unemployment. And in fact, the show brought in a huge number of illiterate viewers who saw their lives unfolding on the screen. And the characters were getting conflicting advice. The negative characters that are the people we love to hate in all melodramas were telling them, no, 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 you're too old, you're too stupid, forget about adult education, you can't do that. The positive characters were saying, of course you can manage it, you're smart, it's just you didn't have an opportunity to go to school, you should try it out. And one by one, these characters registered for adult education, struggled through the classes, sometimes dropping out because it was difficult, but then coming back, finishing, getting their diplomas, and then the audience watched as their lives improved and they could get better jobs and so on. And Sabido decided to do an epilogue in which he gave addresses of adult education registration sites following the graduation ceremony of his most popular character. And I've seen this episode in Mi Español es Terrible. That is, I don't really understand any Spanish, but I was in tears by the end of this episode because this man, so emotional, so thrilled that he could now read the letters he had gotten over the years from his granddaughter, and then it's immediately followed by this epilogue. Perhaps you too would like to do what this man has done, and here are the places you can go. So Sabido had this all taped and ready to broadcast, and he called the Department of Public Education. And he said, perhaps you're aware of a show I'm doing on Televisa. And they said, yes, we like it very much because it's reinforcing our public service announcements. And he said, well, that was my intent. And uh, indeed, 
I'm going to run an advertisement following an upcoming episode in which I give addresses of your registration sites. Can you handle a crowd? And they said, oh, yes, you know, last year we signed up 99,000 people in response to our public service announcement, so we're set up to handle any number you might generate. So he ran the episode, and the following day, in a single day, 250,000 people came in to try to register. And he continued to run these epilogues for the remaining weeks of the serial drama. He had 33% of the nation's viewers watching the program. And by the end of the program, the end of the serial, they had signed up 840,000 people. Now, that's a great model for development. He made money doing a very popular program. He entertained his audience, and he increased literacy in Mexico by a huge amount. Sabido had the same success with storylines about family planning and teenage pregnancy prevention. His educational entertainment strategy allowed viewers to see the benefits of behavior change and then to decide for themselves. He learned that scientific evidence backed him up. People do change their behavior based on positive role models and based on their emotional engagement with a story and characters. William Ryerson founded the Population Media Center on this strategy of social change by storytelling. Since 1998, he's worked in 24 countries broadcasting TV and radio stories of ordinary people making world-changing decisions about reproductive health, rainforest conservation, child trafficking, and many other issues. And it's really based on this very gradual approach to addressing issues and the fact that the programs are rooted in the culture of each country where we're working. All of our projects are run by country nationals. The writers are country nationals. They're writing in local languages. And the values of the program are based on the policies of that country. So it's very much an indigenous project that, in fact, gets audience input into the design of the characters and the storylines that are going to be presented in the program from the very beginning. In India, Ryerson's work supported that country to change the cultural story. A popular TV soap opera shifted the attitudes of 230 million viewers about arranged marriages and the acceptability of women working outside the home. In Tanzania, a radio serial with an HIV-AIDS storyline helped 82% of the audience change their behavior to avoid infection. Most recently, Ryerson has held briefings, called summits, on climate change for Hollywood writers, producers, and network personnel. With the Emory School of Public Health, he held a public health summit with presentations by people from the Center for Disease Control, as well as participation by numerous producers and writers looking at the treatment of public health issues in entertainment programs on American television. In partnership with the e-gaming department of Champlain College and with support from the UN, he's creating an electronic game to prevent violence against women by using a soccer game with characters who will evolve gradually towards non-violence toward their partners based on the football federation FIFA fair play rules. This program has now become part of the UN Secretary General's campaign to prevent violence against women, the UNITE campaign. Using fiction, to create the fact of real social change for the common good. Again, William Ryerson. If you're going to bring about meaningful change in a society, you can't do it overnight. You can't take somebody from 
the status of women in Sudan to Gloria Steinem with a 30-second public service announcement or even a one-hour drama. You've got to do it in baby steps. And you, of course, have to at the same time change the men's attitudes. If you just liberate the women and you don't change the men, you're running the risk of having a lot of beaten women. So what we do is have, first of all, the programs with high entertainment value and a lot of suspense drawing the audience and getting them in love with the characters. And the characters that are designed to be transitional, who show the audience how to overcome the societal obstacles to change, are faced with situations that are very similar to problems that the audience has that we learn through the formative research. So when the characters decide to try something non-traditional, the audience already understands the reasons for it. They're in love with these characters, so they're willing to watch as they try something else. And when the characters role model a success story and they try something that that works, like sending their daughter to school and then their daughter is able to eventually bring up well-educated children and thrive, they can, in a two-year period, learn this and they can see the contrasting storylines of people who try other strategies that we might consider negative but may be traditional in that society that demonstrate the realistic consequences of things like having more children than you can afford to feed or beating your wife or trafficking in children and many of the issues we've dealt with. The audience learns from the negative characters what they don't want to do and they learn from both the positive and the transitional characters what the benefits are while at the same time, because of their emotional bonds with the transitional characters, they're very inclined to model their behavior after them. William Ryerson. When popular fictional characters catalyze fiction into fact, when avatars in an imaginary virtual world create safe space to change the story in the real world, story changes the story for the common good. From soap operas to avatars, digital diplomacy and making fiction into fact. Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at Bioneers.org or by calling one 877 That's 1-877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org, where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences. Purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation. All at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Focus Audiovisual. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond 
and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko disc label. Additional music was made available by Sounds True at www.soundstrue.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0910. Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.